if you guys have a Bible, please open it to John 3. And if you don't, that's okay. We're going um, to have slides for you on the back. So this morning as we approach baptisms, I, I wanted to help us to see baptisms in the light of what we most need to see them in. And this applies to all of us, this light that we need to see our baptisms in. But, but for, for you who are getting baptized tonight especially, I want you to, by God's grace, see the abundance of, of God's heart in your baptism tonight, particularly in the love of God, the love of God in sending his son so that we could celebrate the miracle of new life, of new birth that his love creates. Baptisms are a sign of the greatest miracle that exists in the universe. Baptisms are a sign of the greatest miracle that exists in the universe, the new birth of a soul born out of darkness and into eternal life with God. But that miracle, that new birth, it has a source. It has a motivation that brings it to pass. That source, that motive is God's love. That's his motive, a love which, which sacrifices all that's most treasured to him to overcome your resistance to that love. And, and John 3.16 and all the way to 21, but particularly John 3.16, is one of the clearest and simplest and most profound. And because it's so familiar to us, one of the most taken for granted, I think, and almost not by, by its own fault, but because of our own culture. It's one of the most worn out passages in God's word. Years ago when I preached on this passage, I recalled uh, a, a Halloween costume that uh, a friend of mine had in college, when I was in college, and he wasn't a Christian. But, but he dressed up as a uh, football fan. And, and he, he didn't have a team jersey on, he didn't have a team hat on, the only thing he had on was a sign that said John 3.16. And of course, he was teasing all those Christians who you would see in, in football stadiums. I don't watch much football. I used to watch a lot more. I don't watch more anymore, so I don't know if they still do it. But there was a season when I was watching football where every game you'd see maybe multiple people with just these big placards on, John 3.16, John 3.16. Remember, Tim Tebow actually wrote it in his uh, football makeup, the black mark that you put under his eyes. He put John 3.16. Because it was such a clear, pure, simple message of the gospel to people. But it, it, it's well-worn, right? Well-treaded. And so we can take it for granted. But it, it's worth spending time meditating on and thinking about, especially as we approach these baptisms. So I'm, I'm calling this message, the love of God conquers the love of darkness, because you'll see these two great loves really clear. John 3.16 represents one kind of love the love of the Father that's glorious, immeasurably good, infinitely beautiful. And a few verses later, Jesus will, will tell us about another kind of love that is almost as destructive and selfish as John 3.16's love is, is beautiful and praiseworthy. And it is God's aim through Christ to destroy our love of darkness with his love. And that love is what creates the new birth we're going to celebrate tonight. So before we get into this well-worn path of, of Bible, John 3.16 and some other verses, w would you all pray with me that God would breathe new life into our hearts again this morning and, and blow his Holy Spirit breath over his word into our hearts. Father, we need you. We sang about that this morning. God, as, as I approach you this morning, I'm aware of ways that I feel like I've fallen short, ways that I'm struggling to e understand your will in certain areas of my life. Lord, ways that I can tempt to be tempted to feel distant from you. And I, and I believe my brothers and sisters in this room can all relate in one way or another to that at times. I just thank you so much that you command us to put our gaze on Jesus. Not so that we can run away from you, but so we can draw near to you for what we need, for the help we need, for the power we need.
Lord, you don't want us being like the fool who stands outside the hospital with his wounds, saying, I'll come into the hospital when I get better. No, Lord, we're those who who are called to run into the hospital, the only place where our wounds can be healed, where our hearts can be strengthened, where our vision, Lord, can be recalibrated once again to see what is good, what is beautiful, where our appetites can be reset Lord, do these things. Do them in me. Do them in my brothers and sisters. Do them for anyone here who doesn't know you. Lord, we we put our hope in Jesus. We put our hope in you, Father, through Jesus. And the power of the Holy Spirit that flows from you to teach us today, to husband us today. Lord, we're your bride. (laughs) If we husbands who are so uneven and imperfect, if we know how to love our wives in this room, Lord, how much more do you know how to love your bride and care for your bride and nourish your bride? So we look to you now to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. For your glory. So the broader context of our passage is is Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this fellow religious leader, And one night, after Jesus has begun his ministry in Israel and raised a lot of questions, in the dark of night, this theme of darkness, (laughs) he comes to Jesus so no one can see him coming. He can't get in any trouble. And he's asking Jesus, what are you about? You're doing all these miracles, but you're not buddying up with the religious leaders. You're different than John the Baptist. What's your deal? And Jesus cuts right to the quick with Nicodemus. And he tries to explain to this mystified, confused Pharisee, no one can be part of God's kingdom. No one can see God's kingdom unless he's born again. That's what he says. And then he tries to tell Nicodemus, only the spirit of God can bring the new birth that a man or a woman need in order to see God's kingdom, to be in God's kingdom. And by all appearances, Nicodemus is clueless. Born again? He asks directly, concretely, can a man go back inside his mother's womb and come out again a second time? And so everything we're going to hear today, it's all related to this question Nicodemus is asking. How can a man be born again? How does this happen? And Jesus answers, and he goes right back to the source of how it can happen. He doesn't start with the process. Well, he repents and believes. He goes back to the source. It's the source of how you happen. It's the source of why you care about Jesus, if you do. It's the source of why you're getting baptized tonight, if you are. So let's read this together. Can you put it up? Let's read this one together. Verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, You can read it with me. Let's start again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hallelujah indeed. Martin Luther called this verse the gospel in miniature. For D.L. Moody, he had been preaching a long time as D.L. Moody. But this verse, after he even began as a preacher, explained God's love to him in a grand way as if for the first time. It's, it's arguably the most famous verse in the most famous book in the history of the world. You know, I, I was, I was talking to Jen about this verse. We were having a discussion about whether there was some new approach to take with it to help us get a grip on it um, because we're all so used to seeing it. But, you know, there's no new novel angle or approach to do this verse justice. The verse is famous and well-worn because of this fundamental, universe-shaking, 
life-altering, death-destroying, God-magnifying, God-heart-revealing, gospel-foundation proclamation power that fills each and every word. We don't need to try to see something new in this verse. We just need to see the verse as it is, that it might be new and afresh in our hearts this morning. So we're going to go prayerfully through it piece by piece, and may the Holy Spirit make what might be very familiar to us alive in us and fresh in us again. So the first phrase, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Right away we're told that God's love is behind all that is to come. All that he said to Nicodemus about how to be born again and the Spirit's wind blowing with freedom and power as it wills. He went back, if we go back in the chapter, chapter three, we'll remember uh, he talked about the snake being lifted up in the desert. Everybody who looks to it is li- lives just like in Moses' time. It's all empowered, it's all sourced, and it's all motivated by the agape, self-sacrificial love of God. All that will come in this verse and around it is driven by the love of God. The love of God. God so loved the world. The object of God's love is the world. The world here doesn't mean the world system of our culture. It doesn't mean physical earth. It means all the people of the entire world. All people everywhere, every single person on planet earth is loved by God so much that he would send his son, not just the Jews. And listen, not just those who would accept and receive his love. This word in John, cosmos, it means cosmos. It means world. It means the whole world. D.A. Carson talks about there is a redeemed community that stands in a different and richer relationship with God than does the world. But he says that distinction cannot legitimately be made to call into question the love of God for a world under his judgment. The world that's under God's judgment is a world that he loves we believe, as, as a church, we've we believed for years, we believe the Bible teaches that no one can force God's hand, no one can demand that he save them, no one can make him do. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that God owes us nothing but justice. And that doesn't bode well. If we just get God's, just, God's justice, we're in big trouble. So we believe that God chooses whom he will save. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But it's absolutely crucial for us to understand if God is to be seen rightly and glorified as he should be, that we understand his character of holy love for all people. See, God is able to longingly love even those that he condemns. God, in in Jeremiah 49, God is the one who sees Moab, that nation's horrifying wickedness, And here's what he says about Moab. Moab shall be destroyed and be no longer a people because he magnified himself against the Lord and he is personifying the nation. Terror, pit, and snare are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare for I will bring these things upon Moab in the year of their punishment declares the Lord. They're under God's condemnation, his just condemnation for their sin. But in the very same chapter, God processes, thinks about, this is what that judgment does to the one who's bringing the judgment upon those people. God's heart says this, therefore I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. For the men of Kir Seth, I mourn. Therefore, my heart mourns for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kir Hereseth. Therefore, the riches they gained have perished. See the heart of God that loves those who he has to punish. The heart of God the Father is the same as the heart of God the Son as he weeps over Jerusalem. 
Listen to Jesus' words and hear again if you don't hear the same heart in the cry of Moab. The Lord draws near to Jerusalem. And Luke 19 tells us he weeps over it. And weeping, crying over this city, Jesus said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's crying when he says this. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And now he talks about, with tears in his eyes, what he is going to bring upon that city. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He says this crying. And of course, all that came to pass in horrific realization in, in AD 70 when the Romans decimated the city in horrific ways. I, my point isn't to talk primarily about God's judgment, but I just want you to see that when we say that God loves the world, we mean the world, even the world that he must condemn. He loves so much that he weeps over it. Oh, God help me. You know, as I look at my blood relatives, my neighbors, my coworkers, Lord, I, I just need him to help me to remember that I'm looking at people that even if they remain under God's wrath for their rejection of him, they are people that he deeply loves. He mourns for because he wants them. And we don't understand the mystery of why some are saved and some are not, but the Bible is clear. He wants them all. God so loved the world. There is an intensity to it. He so loved it. How much did he love the world? So much. Don't think of God's love for the world as a proper attitude of, of goodwill like a professor for one of his 300 lecture students. Well, I, I really hope that Megan does well in the exam. I'm for her, you know, a, or a clinical counselor. We hope you'll improve. If you've been in counseling, I've been in counseling. You, you know that sometimes those relationships are very positive, very constructive, but they can be very sterile. They can lack affection and friendship. And the counselor's for you. They wish you well but there's an emotional boundary line that it's just not proper to cross very, very often times in counseling situations. Don't think of God's love like that. That's not how he loves the world. He weeps over his love for the world and his love is so great, he is willing to give all that he can to demonstrate his love. It is a love so great that he gave. He didn't simply feel there wasn't a, a hollow sentimentality, but it was a love that caused him to act with incredible vigor. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. We see that it is God giving his son that expresses all the height of his love and the depth of his love. What really means something to God was that he would give his son the thing that can demonstrate how much he loves the world is that he would give his son. You know, when we think about the Trinity, it can be confusing to think about which one felt what, did what, in the way God does his thing. But we need to see in, in the giving of his son, God did not get talked into that. Like the father did not get talked into the son. You know, saying, Father, send me, please let me, you know, there is Father, send me, but it wasn't, it wasn't separated from the Father's motivation. The Son comes at the initiative of the Father, and he comes desiring to do the Father's will, but it is the Father's will he comes to do. So it is the Father in view sending his one and only Son, and and. this is, this one and only Son language, John uses it in 114. 
but it, it speaks of the intimacy of the Father and the Son. And this is one of those places where I just, I just in my soul, and I hope you hear it too, the truth of the Bible just cries out. This is a holy book. This is a true word of God. This is, this is truth. When you see the same God showing up in Genesis that you see in Revelation, when you see the same God showing up over 6,000 years with the same themes, the same attitudes, and the same hearts. We just looked at Moab and Jesus showing the same heart, right? There's another place where, where a one and only son is held to be the most obvious demonstration of love. We go all the way back to Genesis where God foreshadows how much he loves the son. He hasn't even revealed when he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. And this is the moment where the eternal covenant was cut, where it was confirmed, where God says, I am doing this. I'm gonna bless all people through you, Abraham. Now it happens earlier in Genesis when Abraham first believes and doesn't do anything. But as Abraham's faith matures and God brings him to this critical part, it's this moment that seals the deal, in a sense, in God's relationship with all his covenant people. Even though the gospel is not specifically proclaimed about Christ here, the gospel is here in this Abrahamic covenant in the moment when God deals with Abraham. And for Abraham's uh, faith, God declares that the whole world will be blessed through Abraham. We know later from other books like Galatians that that's really talking about what God's gonna do through Jesus. So, but, but listen to, the, to the, the bullseye. Listen to the ground zero of that commitment that God makes. God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son and Abraham raises the knife to cut his son open and spill his blood as a sacrifice. And Abraham stretches out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham! And Abraham says, here I am. And the angel of the Lord, who from the language we understand is the Lord himself, says this, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is some 19 centuries before Bethlehem. The Bible speaks with one voice because it is written by one God in three. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And moments later, in the same chapter, in the next breath, barely, God renews the covenant with Abraham and he says, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. And so we hear, don't we, these echoes of John 3.16 in this first covenant with a father and son at the core. God is saying, okay, Abraham, what you're doing is meaningful to me. What you're willing to give up is meaningful to me because of what I will have to give up. He doesn't tell Abraham everything, but it's there. God gave his son, the one he delighted in, with a delight beyond our comprehension. He gave the second person of the Trinity. He gave perfection himself personified. God gave up God for you and for the world. He gave his very heart. And, and how did he do it? Listen, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't simply give him as a, as a king to rule over us. And Right? We know this. He didn't, he didn't show up in beautiful pageantry and beautiful robes with a crown and We'd all understand this is beautiful Jesus. We're all going to be ruled by this benevolent king. 
No, he gave him up for us in the most horrific way. Spurgeon writes this, Charles Spurgeon writes this, if you desire to see the love of God, you must consider how he gave his son. He sent him down among scribes and Pharisees whose cunning eyes watched him, where cruel tongues scourged him with base slanders. He sent him down to hunger, thirst, and poverty so dire that he had nowhere to lay his head. He sent him down to the scourging, that's with the whip, and the crowning with thorns, to the giving of his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those that plucked off hair. At length, he gave him up to death, a felon's death, the death of the crucified. Behold that cross and see the anguish of him that dies upon it. And mark how the father has so given him that he hides his face from him. Mark how the father has so given his son that he hides his face from his son and seems as if he would not acknowledge him. When Jesus cries out, Lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That tells us how fully God gave his son to ransom the soul of the sinful. He gave him to be made a curse for us. He gave him that he might die just for the unjust to bring us to God. Why should he be put to a cruel death for such abominable beings who even waste their hands in the blood of their best friend? Why did God do this? course because we needed a sacrifice for our sins but that doesn't really get to the why why would God provide such a sacrifice because of his love God did this because the nature of God the father and the nature of God the son and the nature of God the Holy Spirit is selfless sacrificial agape love 1 John tells us two times, God is love. We've heard that a lot, but it's good to hear it. It can be misunderstood and it can be twisted to, to magnify his love so that functionally other qualities of God, like his holiness, his justice, are, are pushed to the side and, and obscured and no longer does God punish sin, no longer does God have a will that has to be followed with, with our lives, what we do with our money, what we do with sex. No, he's a good grandpa who does whatever, you know, he just loves us. And of course, we can do that with God's love. We can misunderstand it and misabuse it. But when First John tells us God is love, he is trying to tell us something profoundly magnificent and incredible and beautiful. He's saying God is literally selflessness for the sake of the other. That's how he's existed for eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a selfless relationship of love. I am for you, I am for you, I am for you. That is at the core of reality. That is what makes the universe When God says, I am that I am, you know, we're backing up into a wall that we can't get behind, right? We all understand kind of that, or hopefully we understand God saying, I am that I am. There's, there's, I am the source of me. There's no asking, why is God? God is because God is. Well, I think similarly here, God is love. Tells us at the very core, when you strip everything back, what is God's nature? It's love. It's universe-sustaining Reality-defining agape love. Which, of course, if we want to get really metaphysical and talk a lot about proofs for doctrine, requires a relationship, right? You can't be love for eternity and have no object for your love. You can't be eternal love and have no love to give. 
That's one of the beautiful and self-verifying truths about the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is eternal relationship of love for eternity. But I don't want to go, go far, too far down that. Those, there are mysteries beyond us, but, but we see this fundamental agape love nature inherent in God. It's perfectly expressed towards mankind in the giving of his son. And so what's the result of this great sacrifice of the father's giving of the son? What is God free to do now? What miraculous power and grace has been unleashed because the father gives his son? Because the father gives his son now, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Anyone who will put their faith in this sacrifice will secure their full forgiveness of sins and their full salvation to eternal life. Instead of perishing in condemnation and eternal separation from God, instead of hell for our sins, those man, people of mankind, which includes all of us, who should be justly condemned, will, for Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, find God, their eternal Father, forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And in verse 17, Jesus repeats the mission God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did this so that no one ever would perish. No one ever. But yet, if we read the full counsel of God in scripture, we see that many perish. So, What's the problem? Is God not really loving? Did God fail in his mission? No. The rest of the passage explains the problem and concludes with the solution. Verse 18 starts this next section, man's love of darkness. We'll move on. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If God's innate character is sacrificial love, apart from Christ, our innate character is the love of darkness. Verse 18 has this sad reversal. Jesus tells us that he has come to bring salvation, but his coming has instead brought condemnation. The revelation of Jesus which was meant to lead to trust, has instead elicited the world's rejection and condemnation. Not because Jesus is worthy of rejection, but because the world is. See, God's incredible offer of love in the giving of his one and only son, it actually, apart from God's miraculous working, it actually reveals more deeply the world's love of darkness. It actually reveals more deeply that the world has no love for what is truly good. That's the verdict. Carson says this, D.A. Carson says this, I, I, I think this is really helpful. As with the arrogant critic, as with the arrogant critic who mocks a masterpiece, it's not the masterpiece that is condemned, but the critic. As with the arrogant critic who mocks a masterpiece, it's not the masterpiece that is condemned, but the critic. <laughs> Hamlet, it's <laughs> stupid. Those words are dumb. Okay. Mozart, that stuff's so boring. That guy was dumb. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't like Mozart, I'm not a huge Mozart fan. Even, you know, I find Hamlet difficult. I think the general consensus of most of English reading civilization is that they weren't bad. Hamlet, and they, I mean Shakespeare and Mozart, they weren't, they weren't super dumb. 
So when someone says, they're stupid, you know, it's kind of like, ouch, I'm sorry for you, right? And, and that's what Carson's getting at. It, it, the problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with God's love. The problem is that we are far worse than we understand apart from God's love doing more than it's done even in revealing Jesus to us. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The light is Jesus Christ, but men loved darkness rather than light. What does it mean to love darkness? What does it mean that we give ourselves to evil works and love remaining there? Well, one thing is, I, I think it's really important that we understand what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean people never do good things. And I think it's really important that we understand our, our real predicament. Like, if we're going to treasure our salvation, really understand it, really value it, and if we're going to be able to stand courageously before the world... <laughs> to be a light to the world, I think we really have to understand what does it mean that we love darkness? See, we live in an age where it is increasingly a great evil to think that anybody in the world is captured by great evil. We live in an age where the only heresy is to believe that there is heresy. (laughs) So we have to settle this in our minds in the world that, that calls it a great evil, to think that the world around us is great evil, we have to settle our minds, what does it mean that men love darkness as Jesus means it? When the Lord says that we as a world love darkness, he, he is not simply speaking about how we can be lazy or selfish or addicted to money or sex, or neglect the poor. He is speaking about our love of darkness that reveals itself in what we do and what we think of him. He's, re- he's expressing a love of darkness that reveals itself in what we do with him. And I, I think we're so blind to this that when we think of evil, we're so oriented away from God. I mean, I, I, I think even us, like it's just easy for us to not think of God when we think of evil. We think of what we do to people, which is evil and awful because we're made in God's image. But the biggest issue that God has with mankind is what we do with God. People who reject Christ do good and nice things sometimes. People who believe in Christ do bad things sometimes. But mankind as a race does all that he does, bad and good, apart from Christ, in the context of rebelling against the one who alone deserves our greatest love. Rebelling against the one whose loyalty and honor and hope and trust should be given to him by his creation. Our love of darkness is shown primarily in how we treat God. Romans 1 says it this way. Follow me through Romans 1. I've gone over this before, but it it is really such a, it's like a, a key to unlock so much of scripture and so much of salvation and so much of understanding what's at the core of our problem. Romans 1 says this, verse 18 through, I think, 23. For the wrath of God is revealed can we, can we move on? Because I think I've got this. Can you move forward one slide? Please? There you go. Thank you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse 
Paul is telling us that something goes on in the heart of people that people almost never admit today. That everybody knows deep down inside. I mean, he's talking about a almost, a, who is the king of psychology? What's his name? Uh, right? The guy who says, no, Freud, right? I mean, Freud would go into these dark, deep recesses of the human heart to pull out these hidden motivations. And I, I think there, there is such a thing as dark, deep, deep recesses of the human heart where there are hidden motivations. But I don't think Freud knew half as much as Paul knew. Because what Paul is saying that, is that deep down in the recesses of our heart is a suppression of truth. And the suppression of truth is revealed in that we all say together, something comes from nothing. This world comes from nothing. Or this world come from, came from that bird god. Or this world came from that river god. But in the West, it's more fashionable more and more to say, I don't know where it all came from. It came from, who knows? What does it matter? Or it came from nothing. Or Stephen Hawking, the brilliant genius's great, one of his last syllogisms. Okay, I think the universe could have created itself after all. We know this doesn't work. We know this isn't true. Deep in our hearts, God has revealed it to us, he's saying in his word, and mankind is without excuse. And it's not an issue simply of ignorance. It's not an issue simply of uh, different arguments for creation. Paul tells us it's an issue of worship that we don't want to give. He says in verse 21, although they knew God, although everyone understands deep in our heart intuitively that nothing comes from nothing, that there is a God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And it's for this reason that God's wrath is against mankind. It is this that gets to the core of what it means that we love darkness. We exchange the worship that God deserves, the love, the hope, the loyalty, the allegiance that God deserves, and we exchange that for lesser gods. And we do it, Paul says, willfully, in the deep recesses of our hearts. I've used this analogy before, but, but mankind is like children. We are like children, maybe even children who sometimes get along with each other. But we're like children who ignore their parents, who reject their parents, and who would, if need be, crucify our parents, who've given us all that we have or ever will have, all our food, all our clothing, all our shelter. We would rather keep them shut up out of our lives while we use all their money and resources and love and claim it all as our own and take credit for all the good we do with it. And God is not indifferent to that. And the analogy breaks down, of course, because our, our parents don't literally create and sustain our souls from nothing. They don't literally keep our hearts beating every millisecond. They don't keep our brains thinking, our eyes, ears, our skin, our taste buds sensing. They, they don't sustain our very existence every single moment of our lives down to the smallest molecule. But God does. And we want, as a, as, a, as a race of people, we want nothing to do with him. I mean, at least we don't want to do with him what he deserves to be done with. <laughs> Which is to give him the greatest place in our hearts, the greatest place in our lives, the seed of our highest hopes and desires, we might be nice sometimes, we might not be nice, but none of us wants God the way he needs and deserves to be wanted. I shouldn't say needs, but the way he deserves to be wanted apart from the miracle of new birth. Stephen Westerholm puts it like this, where God is not honored, something basic is awry, spoiling even what would otherwise be good. Even the good things God gives us 
sex and food and friendships, entertainment and music and art, even the good things God gives us. When we don't have God, they're spoiled by that. They become idols. And God, (laughs) I'm just telling you what Paul says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is upon mankind because they don't worship God the way he deserves to be worshiped with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. I don't do that. And I don't understand, but that's, that's not just what should happen. God is adamant that that should happen. Love personified is adamant that it be raised above every other value in the universe and glorified above all things. And that it not be traded in and made to be second, third, fourth, 500th place to all the good gifts it creates. So what is God to do? What is infinite love who's deeply offended do? Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Another verse says, another translation says, so that it can be seen that his works have been wrought, have been made in God. Whenever we come to the light, it is because the work of God in our hearts has supplanted and pushed away and taken over our own native love of darkness. It is because God has done a work in our hearts to overthrow our rebellion and reseat himself as the God that we want and the God that we seek. And that's what Jesus calls the new birth. That is what Jesus means when he says, you cannot get to me unless you are born again. You don't want me unless you're born again. I have to come in and do a work in your heart. And that's what he does. This is his overwhelming response. Instead of giving up on us, Instead of, he comes upon a whole world full of love for the whole world and he says, come, come, come. And everyone says, no. You would say, no, I don't want you. I said, no, I don't want you for 20 years. And if it wasn't for God, I'd be saying it for another 50 years. I didn't want God. (laughs) I wanted his stuff. I wanted peace. I wanted to get away from all these worries and fears and anxieties, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to have to give up all this other stuff. I didn't want, but instead of giving up on us, he grabs you and he grabs you and he grabs you and he grabs you and he says, I'm not going to take no for an answer. All reject him, but in his sovereign grace, he performs a miracle on those he chooses. He wants all, he calls all, but he doesn't choose all. But for those that he decides to choose among all those, the whole world that he wants, he overthrows their mutiny and he makes them new and they are born again. If if you are still saying yes today to God, if you are still believing on his son, if you are still fighting the good fight and setting your hope on Jesus, as, as hopefully all of you are in this room, and most of you are, I believe, if you see in your heart some affection and desire, even an imperfect following after Jesus, if there is a tender spark in you that wants him, despite all your imperfections and your struggles and your failures, you want him. And you know in your core, he's home. He's home. 
Jesus would say, God has wrought a work in your heart to bring you to him. His selfless love for you has destroyed and is destroying and will keep on destroying your love of darkness. You are still in the long process of sanctification. I know and I am, but your salvation is not secured by your sanctification. Your salvation is not secured by your progress. It's secured by his love. And he will, he promises, complete that work. And you are to hope in his promise above all things for the completion of your work. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm gonna close one more time with Charles Spurgeon. The essence of The essence of faith is trust, reliance, dependence. Fling away every other confidence of every sort except confidence in Jesus. Do not allow a ghost of a shade of a shadow of a confidence in anything that you can do or anything that you can be, but look only to him who God has set forth to be the propitiation for sin. Propitiation means the atoning sacrifice who turns aside, who exhausts God's wrath. And Spurgeon says in the middle of his sermon, I love this, he says, this I do at this very moment. I mean, he's been a Christian for years, right? And he's teaching us something. I gotta keep doing this. He's in the middle of a sermon and he's saying, I'm doing it right now. I'm putting aside every other confidence I have in what I've done or can do and I'm putting it back in Jesus. And then he says, this I do at this very moment. Will you not do the same? See then the love of God in putting it so plainly. He's talking about John 3.16. He's put it so plainly, so easy a way. Oh, you broken, crushed, and despairing sinner. You cannot work, but can you not believe that which is true? You cannot sigh. You cannot cry. You cannot melt your stony heart, but can you not believe that Jesus died for you and that he can change the heart of yours and make you a new creature? If you can believe this, then trust in Jesus to do so and you are saved. For he that believes in him is justified. He that believes in him has eternal life. He is a saved man. His sins are forgiven. Let him go his way in peace and sin no more. If you're in this room this morning and you've walked away from God, today God calls you back and says, put your hope in me. Man, I am doing that right now. I'm thinking about a day I have in front of me with TV shows to choose or how much TV to choose or whether we should go out to dinner or not go out to dinner, or a million things I can put massive amounts of conscience eroding fear into because I want to follow God. And I know that I can sin in quiet, polite, nice ways that none of you will ever know about and that maybe even my family won't ever know about. But instead of helping my wife, I can just ignore her quietly. And I know that that's not agape love that doesn't represent the image of God that he is. And I've got a billion of those choices in the next 12 hours. And I'm freaked out by it, frankly. (laughs) Because I want to walk with him. Because I know how good and beautiful and yummy he is. (laughs) Like how joyful it is to walk with him. Like really walk with him. There's nothing better. His love really is better than life. I know every one of you guys who I know well knows this. I know you know it. I do. Jonathan Coleman, I know you know it. I would spend hours at Starbucks for many times where Jonathan would tell me about the delight of the Lord and and just finding the delight of him. But it is not easy to keep walking and to keep enjoying that delight. 
So what am I to do over the next 12 hours of my imperfections? Where do I hope? Well, I gotta put my hope back on him. Even for those little choices I have to make, I'll be strong enough to make the right choices. No, I won't. But with the temptation, he is faithful. He will provide a way out so that I can endure it. Whether it's turning off the movie or ending my nap early to help Jen with something when I just want to be selfish. He has enough for me. And even when I fail, his justification doesn't end. He knew that sin was coming. He's still there. Oh. He's not a cheap date. He, he doesn't want to be taken for granted. He wants to be the Lord. But when we fail him, he doesn't give up on us. If you're walking away from God today, even a little, God calls you to put your hope back in Jesus to sustain you today. And if you fail, he calls you to get back up. To believe that Jesus has taken the punishment for whatever sin is between you and God, either now or tomorrow. To believe that he has the power that's not in you to free you whether for the first time or for the 4,000th time. It's not in your power. It's not in my power. It's in his power. Let's look to him. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like I have, I don't mean this in an, uh, Lord, I feel that this is maybe for some of us a holy moment. Lord, I've, I've boasted in you. I've boasted in your faithfulness in front of my brothers and sisters who, who know struggle like I do. God, I don't want this to be a, a good speech or even a bad speech. <laughs> I don't want it to be just a speech. We really need what we sung about, Lord. We really need your Holy Spirit to help us see you for who you really are, to help us really depend on you. Lord, I'm sure where anybody is living off their own bootstraps, there's exhaustion and weariness. We need to live off of you. God, I can't make it two seconds being faithful to you without you being faithful to me. And so please, be the humble God that you are. Be the gentle God that you are. Be the servant God that you are. Lord Jesus, please get down on your knees and put your tunic around your waist and take our feet in your hands and wash them in the basin of your love and your power again. What kind of backward universe is this that, that I even have to say that to my God to get down on your knees and to wash my feet? But Lord, I can't make it without you washing my feet again and again and again. And I know nobody in this room can make it. Would you serve us with your tender love so that, Lord, we, we are freed. The chains are broken so that, again, we can serve you. We praise you, Lord, for your incredibly huge, giant heart of love for this world. Would you make us, Lord, afresh mourn for those that reject you?
who innately want nothing to do with you. Would you give us a heart for those who are under your wrath? Because you have a heart for those who are under your wrath. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me. For exchanging those Holy Spirit-given burdens for the lost with comfort and TV and all the pleasant good things you give and restore our burden for the lost. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.